as always, I want to stress before we begin our time in God's Word today that it is God's Word that we're going to look to, and we trust that the Lord will make His Word real to us as we consider it together this morning. So open your Bibles, if you would, please, to 2 Corinthians, Paul's second epistle uh, to the church at Corinth. I say his second epistle. We, we think due to some things that we read in his letters to Corinth that uh, there perhaps was an earlier letter that he wrote to the church that God was not pleased to uh, preserve uh, for us. But uh, at any rate, we do have both the first and second letter to Corinthians here in our Bible. And I would like for us to look at chapter 5 and a couple of verses in chapter 6 here this morning. And as we uh, look to this, let me say that uh, uh, I've entitled the message this morning, Grace Embraced by Us or No Grace. Grace Embraced Us, I should say, or No Grace. Grace embraced us, or no grace. So if you would, look with me uh, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 16. The apostle says, therefore, and of course, as we so often say, and you're well aware, when you see a word like therefore, it's always good to back up just a little bit and see what, uh, what the therefore is there for. And uh, I, I always feel, and coming to more and more see the importance of uh, not looking at any particular passage of Scripture, or especially any one verse of Scripture without considering it in its context, because uh, so often we don't receive a correct understanding of any passage or any verse unless we see it within the context in which it's written. And so uh, I would say the therefore is to call our attention here in verse 16 to a lot that the Apostle Paul has been saying leading up to this point, but in particular, the two verses just beforehand. So let me back up and, and give you a little context here, if I could, where Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Now, some translations have constrains us, and uh, uh, both words are uh, correct, of course, because to be constrained by something is to be controlled by something, isn't it? And so Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live to themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, therefore, taking into consideration what we read there in verses 14 and 15 especially, therefore from now on we recognize no man according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. 
The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. May I read that verse again? Oh, how important. Listen. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Oh, the need in all our hearts to be reconciled to God is paramount, isn't it? Paramount. What happens if we're not reconciled to God? We spend an eternity alienated, separated from Him. So we beg you, we beg you to listen to God's Word. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Verse 1 of chapter 6. And working together with Him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. That is a quote from Isaiah chapter 59. At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. What was it that uh, you think he listened to? I suspect it was a cry for help. Cry for help. Something every one of us desperately need, and something only God can provide as we need it. And so he goes on to say, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. Well, would you bow with me again just for a moment as I sense a real need for God to make His presence known in the preaching of His Word this morning. So bow with me, would you please? Gracious, loving Father, for the privilege, for the privilege, Lord, of proclaiming your word, I thank you. And Lord, I acknowledge that I'm not sufficient for such a thing, but I'm encouraged. As the scripture says, my sufficiency is of the Lord. My sufficiency is of the Lord. And so I look to you, Lord Jesus. I look to you, Spirit of God. Be my sufficiency this morning. Lord, these things that you've placed upon my heart, 
enable me to relate them to these folks who gathered here this Lord's Day. Make real to all of us, Lord, the things that you would have us to understand. And I'll thank you and praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we were looking at grace that has embraced us. And if it hasn't, we have no grace. We have no grace. Uh, that word embraced, you folks know how much I love to define words. Uh, probably most of us here this morning have a rough idea of what we mean by being embraced, don't we? But uh, Webster, he says embraced means to be clasped, to be clasped and to be held near and dear to the heart with love and affection. Clasped and held near and dear to the heart with affection. That's what the grace of God does uh, uh, on our behalf and for us. It holds us near and dear to the heart of God. And that's amazing, isn't it? When you consider what and who we are in and of ourselves. But uh, this morning as we consider these things, we're going to begin with the first part of that and, and take a look at uh, grace embracing. Grace embracing. And let me say at the outset here this morning that uh, God's grace must embrace us first or we'll never embrace God's grace. Uh, it's, it's almost the same as what John talks about in First John where he says we love him because he first loved us. Uh, God takes the initiative, does he not? God begins that which uh, follows after. Uh, our embracing the grace of God, our embracing of Christ because of the grace of God is altogether, altogether 100% the result of the regenerating or life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. If God the Holy Spirit were not to come and touch our lives with the power of God to the point that we are made alive unto God, uh, it would never be that we would know anything at all about God's grace. It takes a work of God's Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. And as we think about God's grace embracing us uh, as we see the apostle talking about it here in our text this morning especially where he says therefore if any man is in Christ if any man is in Christ he is a new creature uh, that's not something that can be apart from God's grace not something that would ever happen in any of our lives were it not for the grace of God uh, and therefore we have much to be uh, rejoicing about with thanksgiving uh, if we've been created anew in Christ Jesus because it's evidence of God's grace. And without God's grace, it would never happen. The apostle wrote in Ephesians, the second chapter and in verse 10, we are his workmanship. 
We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Uh, it takes the work of God to put us in Christ, doesn't it? Uh, why is it that this must be? Why is it that this must be? Well, I, uh, I was thinking about this, and it reminded me of a, of a uh, nursery rhyme. I spoke of years and years ago, long before we were even in Mon or in uh, Indiana. I almost said Montana, uh, but long before we were in Indiana, I I can remember uh, using this little nursery rhyme for an illustration, and it's not one I'm sure that you're unfamiliar with. It's about Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Well, <laughs> Humpty Dumpty was broken pretty bad, wasn't he? If all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again. But our, uh, our dilemma is much worse than being broken. We're dead. We're dead. Isn't that what Paul wrote to the folks there? in Ephesus. Uh, now, I know that the authorized version, the King James that I grew up with and that I memorized, the second chapter of Ephesians uh, begins with, and you did he quicken, or you did he make alive when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, but it just so happens that that first part was probably not in the original manuscript. Uh, but we see it just a few verses later, so it is here in the scripture. Uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 2 but uh, we are quickened by the power of God's spirit when we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins uh, you remember what God spoke to Adam in the garden having created him and placed him there and then uh, given him a helpmate that uh, he needed gave him a wife created Eve for him, and God told them, you can eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden except for one, except for one. And in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you shall surely die, die. Now then, even physical death was a result of such disobedience, but it went much deeper than that. It wasn't just physical death that God said they would experience if they uh, ate of the fruit of that particular tree. It was spiritual death, spiritual death. When God created Adam and Eve, they were alive unto God. They had fellowship with God. In the cool of the day, the scripture refers to them walking together in the garden in fellowship. What an amazing thing that was. They knew God. They experienced the presence of God daily in their lives but when they disobeyed God all that changed they were cut off from God separated from God dead to God and Paul says in, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 wherefore by as one man sin came into the world and death by sin so death has passed upon all men for all have sinned we you and I all of us come into this world dead to God with a nature that is alienated and separated from God because of our sinful nature 
and because of the sins that we commit. And so our predicament, our, our dilemma is much worse than Humpty Dumpty's because we're not only broken, although if you listen to a lot of preachers today, you know, you get the idea that, well, we're just sick, or maybe, maybe we are just broken, but it's much more than that. It's much more than that. We are dead, dead to God. And if God doesn't make us alive, that's the way we'll spend eternity, dead to God, separated from God. And, uh, and so in our text here this morning, the apostle says in verse 17 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. That is a direct reference to the work of God's Spirit. We become a new creature. That is, there is a new life that comes into us. But it doesn't come into us separated from Christ. It's in Christ that we are created anew. Uh, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And because of that, old things pass away, and behold, all things become new. Well, let's consider this morning as we um, go on looking at this, what it is to be in Christ. What it is to be in Christ. Now, you all recognize that this this particular subject has been on my heart for some time, because a couple of weeks ago, uh, the message was from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. You recall that? Where there the Apostle Paul says, But of him that is of God are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Uh, In Christ. It's important that we be in Christ, and it's important that we understand what it means to be in Christ. And so let's look at that. What What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it's life for us. In the first place, it is life for us. Uh, Look with me, if you would, in John chapter 3. Gospel according to John. And by the way, uh, you'll notice I'm going to be just a little bit slow this morning in getting to some of these references myself because I'm preaching out of a Bible that I've not preached from before. Uh, And so you bear with me as I take a little longer getting to some of these scriptures, but perhaps that'll be helpful to you as well. Uh, I sometimes have a tendency to rush too much and don't give you time to look the verses up. So John chapter 3 and verse 36. Jesus said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He that believes in the Son has eternal life. Are you really aware that the only real life that there is is eternal life? The only real life there is. This physical life that we experience uh, is a temporary thing. It's temporal. And it's not real life. Uh, The only real life there is is eternal life. John began his gospel account there in the first chapter of John by telling us in the beginning was the Word 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. In Him was life. And there is no real life anywhere other than in Him. And so that begins to uh, help us understand really what the Apostle is saying there in our text when he says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. He has experienced life. That's what he's saying. He's made alive, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, quickened, made alive unto God. Uh, And so needful and so essential for those who are dead to God, to be made alive unto God. Looking a little further in the Gospel of John into the fifth chapter. John chapter 5, verse 24 and 25. Here the Lord Jesus says, Truly, truly. Boy, when we see that, truly, truly, (laughs) it's there to get our attention. It's there to cause us to realize that he's about to say something really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death unto life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. What an amazing time that is when those who are dead to God hear the voice of God and live. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. Well, one other reference here as we consider what it means to be in Christ found in John's first epistle, John's first letter, chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 of 1 John 5. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Our text said what? If any man be in Christ... He's a new creature. He has life. He has life. This is the witness. God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Notice the definite article there before life. The life. The life. Because there's only one. Only one kind of life. And that's the life of God, the life of Christ, eternal life. These things he went on to say, I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And so to be in Christ is to have life. It's to be alive from the dead. In the second place, it is to be free from condemnation. To be free from condemnation. Back to John chapter 3 again. And in the 18th verse of John chapter 3, Jesus, as he, by the way, is speaking to Nicodemus here as he is throughout the third chapter of 
of the gospel according to John. Remember he talked to Nicodemus early on in the chapter about the fact that unless he was born again, he couldn't even see the kingdom of God. Couldn't see it, couldn't understand it, had no, had no ability to grasp the things, the spiritual things of God's kingdom. Well, he was talking to Nicodemus about his need to have life, wasn't he? So look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged or not condemned. Not condemned. But he who does not believe has been judged or condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. All but Paul wrote to the church at Rome in the 8th chapter of Romans and verse 1, to be in Christ is to not be condemned. Look at it with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Let's look at this together. I hope you don't mind us looking at a lot of Scripture. You know, I uh, I learned a long time ago uh, that it's God's Word that we're to preach. It's God's Word that we're to preach. And so... I don't know any better way of doing that other than hearing what God himself has to say. And so in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, this is God's word. And uh, he says in the first verse of the 8th chapter, if I can get my fingers to turn the page here, he says, "There, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, to be in Christ is to no longer be condemned. If you're not in Christ, you're already condemned. We come into this world under the condemnation of God. We come into this world having been judged already as dead to God and sinful and therefore alienated from God and destined in the state that we're in to an eternity separated from God in a hell a hell provided for the devil and his angels, prepared for the devil and his angels. Oh, but to be in Christ is to not be condemned. In the third place, to be in Christ is to have a righteousness that satisfies God. And we need to understand that if we have a righteousness that satisfies God, it's it's not our own. It's not our own righteousness. Uh, because we don't have any, do we? We don't have any. Oh, we have a, a self-righteousness that we're pretty proud of from time to time. What's Isaiah say about it? Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, Isaiah, the prophet, says all our righteousness. As a matter of fact, he put it, he made it a plural thing. All our righteousnesses, all our very best deeds, all our best works, you can stack them up from the day you're born to the day you die and present them to God, and what does he see? Nothing but filthy rags. Filthy rags. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the eyes of God. So it's not good enough. Our righteousness is not good enough. Paul made that very clear as he was writing his letter to the church at Rome back in the third chapter, verse 10 and following Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Verse 10, 
Paul says, as it is written, he's quoting from the book of Psalms, Psalm 14, as he writes here. And he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, none righteous, not even one. Furthermore, there's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless or unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not even one. And that doesn't mean that we don't look at one another and see good things taking place in our lives. It's not good in the eyes of God not good enough to make us acceptable in God's eyes because all the good things that we do flow out of what kind of a heart? A sinful heart. A heart that is depraved and alienated from God, dead to God. And so uh, we need a righteousness that will satisfy God. A righteousness that pleases God. Where do you get such a thing? Found only one place. Only one place. In Christ. In Christ. Of Him are you in Christ Jesus, Paul said, who is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Righteousness that satisfies God is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Here in our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle says, that God made him, in verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. To be in Christ is to be given a righteousness that pleases God and satisfies him. In the next place, to be in Christ is to be a recipient of his love. To be a recipient of his love. And what a marvelous thing that is, when you consider that when we come into this world in our natural state, uh, our life is at enmity with God. And I like the way the, uh, uh, the ESV and the New American Standard put it. It's, it's stronger than just enmity. It's hostile. Our carnal mind, our fleshly mind is hostile to God. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Hostile to God. Uh, that's our nature, to be at enmity with God, to be hostile toward God. James tells us in his letter, in the fourth chapter of James, in verse 4, that friendship with the world is enmity with God, or hostility toward God. Being on good terms with the world <laughs> is to actually be hostile to God. That's why John would write what he writes in his first letter, chapter 2, when he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Uh, for if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Because loving the world puts us at enmity with God. Our hostility to God comes to the surface. Salvation. Salvation, which all of us so desperately need, uh, is basically can be traced to his love, to God's love for us. Uh, some of you may be familiar with what Jeremiah the prophet wrote in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, when he talks about 
uh, God has loved us with an everlasting love. Not only has he loved us with an everlasting love, but he has drawn us unto himself with the cords of everlasting love. That's where salvation has its spring. The love of God. A love that God set upon a people from before the foundation of the world. An everlasting love. Eternal love. Eternal love. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 again, would you? Listen to what Paul writes here in this precious portion of Scripture where he makes known to us so much of what God has been pleased to bless us with in Christ. And in this first chapter of of Ephesians here, uh, beginning with... uh, with verse 4 through verse 7. Listen to what he says. Just as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Oh, to be, to be in Christ is to be a recipient of the love of God. The love of God. In the next place, to be in Christ. If it's not enough, if it's not enough to uh, to have life from the dead, if it's not enough to be free from condemnation because we are found in Christ, if it's not enough to be the recipient of His love, Consider this. It is to receive an inheritance that we don't deserve. An inheritance that we don't deserve. What is it that we do deserve? What is it that we deserve? We deserve death. We deserve God's judgment and condemnation. We deserve God's wrath. The least little sin, if there is such a thing, The least little sin makes us deserving of all the wrath of a holy God. Any sin is so offensive to God that God says through Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. All. All ungodliness. All unrighteousness is worthy of God's wrath. That's what we're worthy of. That's what we deserve. Oh, but not so if we're in Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 11, Paul says, We have obtained an inheritance. An inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things after the counsel of 
his will. We have an inheritance. Look with me back in Romans chapter 8 again. The 8th chapter of Romans once again. Beginning with verse 14 of Romans chapter 8. Here Paul writes, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit of God. The Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You know, the scripture teaches us that God, the Father, has given everything, everything to Christ. And what are we just reading here? What are we just reading here? Because we are in Christ, all that He Himself is the heir to, we also are the heir to. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that almost beyond our ability to comprehend and grasp and understand? All that God has given Christ, which is everything. Everything. We share it. Joint heirs with Christ. All looking a little further here in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and following. Most of us are very familiar with this. This verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now listen. He who did not, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Freely give us all things. Freely. That word freely bears out the fact that it's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. It's a gift that God gives all who are in Christ. He didn't spare His Son. He delivered Him up to a cruel death on the cross dying in our place, suffering in our place, suffering the wrath of God that I deserve and that you deserve. All of that, He did. If God would do that, why would He not give us everything? And He has. He has. 
joint heirs with Christ, an inheritance, an inheritance that we don't deserve. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be embraced by the grace of God. To be embraced by the grace of God. That's what it means. Oh, but we need to look at the other side of that coin, don't we? What if you're not embraced by the grace of God? Then you have no grace. You have no grace. Grace Grace is not something to be taken lightly. Grace is not something to be tossed about, bannered about, joked about. Uh, Not something to be frivolous about. I remember somebody wrote a book years ago. Even the title of the book kind of bothered me. It said, Grace is not a blue-eyed blonde. Well, that may be true. But why would we even why would we even consider thinking about the grace of God in such a frivolous thing as that? Grace. God's grace. If we're not embraced by the unmerited favor of God, that's what grace is. Undeserved, unmerited. Or as some have said, God's riches at the expense of His Son, Christ. That's grace. God giving us everything when we're found in Christ. That's grace. God not giving us what we deserve, but giving us what we don't deserve. Everything that Christ has. Well, let's look here in the sixth chapter of Second Corinthians, if we can, for just a few minutes as we begin to wrap up what God would have us consider here today. Chapter 6 and verse 1, uh, this portion of Paul's letter begins, and working together with him. That is, this one that he made to be sin for us who didn't know any sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He made Him, verse 21 of chapter 5 says, He made Him, and now Paul says, and working together with Him. With Him. Uh, We are co-laborers, Paul said, with Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe it's verse 9, he refers to us as, co-laborers or himself and his fellow laborers were co-laborers with Christ working together with him with him Uh, the Lord Jesus in his high priestly prayer his high intercessory prayer that's recorded for us in the 17th chapter of John uh, let me read this for you John chapter 17 and verse 18 John 17 and verse 18. Jesus says he's praying. He's just prayed in verse 17 that that God would sanctify us in the truth. His word is truth. And then he says in verse 18, As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. What did Jesus come into the world for? 
Why did he come in the world? Well, if we were to go back into the sixth chapter of John, uh, well, let me just turn there and read it to you so I don't misquote it. John chapter 6. Beginning with verse 38. Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but should lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have everlasting or eternal life, and I myself will raise him up at the last day. What did he come into this world for? To do the will of the Father. What was the will of the Father? Well, at one point he said, I'm come to seek and to save that which is lost. To seek and to save that which is lost. That's what God sent him to do, isn't it? That's what God sent him to do. And isn't it interesting that a little bit later in John, after he said here in his prayer in verse 18 of John 17, as thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. He speaks to his disciples themselves in John chapter 20 and in verse 21. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. As the Father sent me to seek and to save that which is lost, I send you with the gospel message that I came to seek and to save the lost. That's working together with him. Working together with him. The Great Commission, that's what it's all about. Matthew put it like this. Go ye into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always. That's working together with him. Mark puts it very simply, doesn't he? Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. That's what it means to be working together with him. Oh, but then, he says, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Well, most of you, I'm sure, are at least somewhat familiar with what led up to the flood all the way back in the book of Genesis. Are you familiar with that? Most of you are somewhat. Let's turn back there if we could and look at this for just a moment. And I know you're thinking about what in the world has that got to do with what we're talking about here this morning? Well, it does. It does. It's a a picture of something we need to see this morning. Uh, Leading up to the flood in the book of Genesis, Chapter 6. Chapter 6 of Genesis. Verse 1 and following. Now it came about that when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Well, there's some controversy and some difference of opinion as to what this is talking about, who this is actually talking about here in verse 2. But regardless of who it is specifically, whatever view you might take, uh, the Lord went on to say, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. In other words, uh, God is saying uh, there was something that took place that was displeasing to him. 
these marriages that were taking place were not sanctioned by God as they were. Nevertheless, his days, he went on to say, shall be 120 years. Well, verse 5 goes on to say, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. Sin was dominating the lives of these whom the Lord is talking about here. And verse 6 went on to say, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And he said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There it is. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, let's go on a little bit further here in verse 11 and following. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Well, he went on in verse 14. He said to Noah, Make for yourself an ark. Make an ark for yourself of gopher wood. In verse 17, I'm bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Oh, but look in chapter 7. Chapter 7. The Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in, in this time. Verse 4, I will send rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights and blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. He did what God said. Verse 10, came about that after seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. Verse 13 and following. On that very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with him, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, all of the flesh in which was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female, of all flesh entered as God had commanded them. Now listen. And the Lord closed it behind them. Now the ESV and the King James say, God shut them in. What happened? Noah, he and his family, because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And those animals that God wanted preserved uh, for later, multiply on the face of the earth. They went into the ark and God shut the door. Now what was the ark? It was a place of safety. It was a place of refuge from the destruction that God was about to bring about on every living thing on the face of the earth. If you were in the ark, 
you were saved. You were saved. If you were not in the ark, you perished. You perished under the wrath of God. Under God's wrath. Oh, but the Lord shut Noah and his family in the ark. Now, undoubtedly, as I was thinking about this, uh, while building the ark, all those years that it took for Noah and his sons to build the ark as God commanded them to do, undoubtedly while they were doing that, uh, I'm sure that Noah warned others about what was going to happen. But his preaching, his preaching was in vain. And it went unheeded, didn't it? What is it that Paul said in our text? Don't receive the grace of God in vain. According to the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 9 through verse 11, we read there that the Apostle Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth. A year and six months, the scripture says, he spent in Corinth. What was he doing? Preaching God's word, teaching God's word, proclaiming the truths of God's word, proclaiming to all that would listen to him that the only place of safety from the wrath of God, the only place of refuge is in Christ. In the ark that God has provided, and that ark is Jesus Christ. That place of safety from the wrath of God is Jesus Christ. You know what we need to be saved from? Oh, sure, it's our sin we need to be saved from. But ultimately, we need to be saved from God himself. From God himself. God in his holiness, in his purity, who hates sin and is offended by sin. We must be saved from God or we perish. And the only place of safety from God's wrath is in the ark. And that's Christ. That's Christ. And there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And now what Paul said in Romans 8, chapter 1. No condemnation. No judgment. Those who are in Christ will never face judgment. Why? Because that one who has become our hiding place has already suffered God's wrath on our behalf. The judgment that we deserve, he took. He suffered. He died in our place. And then provided himself as a place of refuge for us that we might be acceptable in him before God. Oh, in our text, he urges the Corinthians to not let the preaching of God's gospel of grace to be in vain. Don't let it be in vain. Don't let it go without accomplishing that which you need. That's what he was telling them. Well, many of them, many of them, just like those folks for all those years, undoubtedly heard Noah time and time again declaring to them what they were facing if they didn't repent of their sin. I'm sure he did that. Just like Paul preached over and over for a year and a half to those Corinthians. 
And many of them heard the message often. They heard it often. They either ignored it or they simply didn't believe it. Well, today, today, right now, just as in Paul's day, many there are who have heard the word of God's grace repeatedly proclaimed to them and have not been compelled to heed its call to repent of sin and cast themselves upon God's mercy in Christ. How many? How many attend church regularly? Hearing the word of God. Hearing the gospel of God's grace. Hearing that the only place of refuge from the wrath of God is in Christ. And yet, the message goes unheeded. Oh, the psalmist said there's only one way that the message will be heeded. And in Psalm 110 and verse 3, the psalmist says, folks will be willing, be willing to heed the message. Folks will be willing to listen. Folks will be willing to believe God's word, take him at his word in the day of his power. They shall be willing in the day of my power. My people, he said, my people shall be willing in the day of God's power. Oh, my. In our text, Paul said in verse 2, let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me read it again. Verse 2 of chapter 6, Paul says, as he's quoting the psalmist, at the acceptable time I listened to you and on the day of salvation I helped you. On the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, he went on to say, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. But know this, know this, dear friend, one day, the door is going to be closed. One day, God's going to shut the door. One day, the day of God's grace will be a thing of the past. And when God closes the door of His grace, it'll never open again. It'll never open again. Salvation, salvation will not be available anymore. Salvation from one's sin, its guilt, and its penalty, and God's wrath because of it. There'll be no hope any longer. No hope. For the door is closed. And so what would I exhort? What would I exhort today my hearers to do? Flee from sin. Turn from sin. And believe with all your heart the Lord Jesus. Believe in Him. Trust in Him.
just as Paul and Silas told that Philippian jailer when he cried out, what must I do to be saved? Very simply, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe. Trust him. Trust him. There's no other name. No other name. The book of Acts chapter 4 tells us there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Only Christ. Only trusting Christ. Only to be in Christ. Hidden in Christ. By faith. That's the only way. The writer in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. He's talking about faith in Christ. Without faith in Christ, without believing Christ, there's no way to please God. Oh, I would encourage you, think about what God has spoken to us today about being embraced by His grace and what it means if we're not. What it means to not be embraced by the grace of God. And rest assured, if your heart longs to be saved from sin, God's grace has embraced you. No one ever desires to turn from sin unless God doesn't work in their heart. It's contrary to our nature. It's contrary to nature. We want nothing to do with it. We don't understand it. Don't have any desire for it. Oh, believe. Trust him today. Trust him today. Let's pray.